0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, July 29th. We begin with a look at the upcoming municipal election and the long lead up of campaigning that started months ago. We speak with MRU political scientist Lori Williams to break down the pros and cons of such a lengthy campaign. Next, new numbers released by Stats Canada show a drop in crime severity nationwide last year, with Alberta showing the biggest decline. We get reaction from Chad Tofik, Deputy Chief with the Calgary Police Service. Then, a look at the importance of patient feedback when it comes to treating youth mental health issues in our province. We hear details on a new report on the topic from the UFC's School of Public Policy. And finally, believe it or not, this week marks 500 days of working from home for many Canadians. While many plans have been laid out for the return to the office, what if you're not quite ready to make your way back? We hear strategies to negotiate a continued working from home plan with your employer from a professor of business at Queen's University. We don't vote until October, but in the dog days of summer, the three frontrunners for Calgary's top job are fighting it out tooth and nail for your attention. Lori Williams is a political science professor from Mount Royal University, and she joins us now to discuss. Good morning to you, Lori. Good morning, Andrew. Well, you know, Laurie, the bottom line is it's a different kind of election uh, this year, uh, obviously with COVID protocols. And I know that as early as November of last year, I believe it was, that uh, Councillor Jeremy Farkas threw his hat in the ring uh, for, for mayor. Candidates started campaigning much sooner than they did in normal years. But the big question is, is this a good thing or a bad thing, or does it make a difference with such a lead up?
1: Uh, generally speaking, particularly when it comes to municipal elections, people don't really start paying attention until, especially given that the election is in October, people generally won't won't be paying attention until late August into September. That's going to be even more the case this year, partly because people are um, enjoying the, the summer, the possibility mm-hmm. of meeting with friends and family in ways that they haven't been able to do previously because of the pandemic. So I think um, politics are sort of distant in people's awareness or concern right now. Uh, they, of course, are paying attention to, to what is happening on the part of governments in terms of new variants and so forth. But beyond that, I think people are, are not paying particular attention to municipal election and, in fact, um, also have uh, referendums, plebiscites, and, and federal elections um, sort of hovering on the horizon as well.
0: Yeah, there's there's a really a lot on the go when you look at between now and October, and we don't even know. Yeah, as you mentioned and alluded to, federally what could happen. Uh, but let's get back to civic. There's going to be a lot of change, obviously, on council after the vote, particularly with the three sitting councilors running for mayor. Jeremy Farkas has mentioned, Joe T. Gondek and Jeff Davison. Obviously, the front runners. I would think that's a safe bet to say. Uh, but what do you make of their tactics and trying to attract public attention so early on? Could could things backfire, getting such a lead up?
1: Uh, It depends on on what the tactics are, what they're saying, uh, and whether that's effective. So certainly Jeremy Farkas um, getting his name out first um, probably got ahead of others in terms of having uh, a bit more attention, well, exclusively attention attention upon him in the early stages. Uh, But again, people weren't paying a lot of attention, certainly not scrutinizing what his policies and so forth might be. It was just sort of getting the idea of the election on their minds. It's, it's, I think, been difficult for Jeff Davison in that uh, there are questions swirling around whether he has um, violated election rules at this stage of the game and there may be others who come into that, that uh, swirl of questions as well. But but I don't think there's, again, enough attention one way or the other on things. People aren't really getting a a very clear sense of what these these counselors uh, represent, nor are they really attacking one one another's records at this Mm -hmm. stage of the game in a substantive way. Once that starts happening, I think things will start to shape up
0: differently. And when you say once that starts happening, are you uh, you tying that to the same time frame you gave as far as when the public starts to pay attention, like probably 30 days or 45 days ahead?
1: Yeah, I think that's likely what, what we'll start to see. But again, with these other political uh, questions in the air, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how that's going to play out. But if you look at polls, the vast majority of, of Calgarians are, are undecided at this stage of the game. So that makes any polling up until this point pretty much meaningless since, since we don't have a sense at all of where um, more or most Calgarians are leaning.
0: And it's interesting to me, you know, when you look at Councillor Gondek, now uh, mayoral candidate, uh, excuse me, uh, Jyoti Gondek, uh, mentioning, for example, she was very much on, I believe it was last week, talking about child care in the province, which is typically, obviously, uh, the federal program, and then it would come down through the province. Really, a lot of, you know, people on the other side were saying, uh, she has no dog in the fight. This is not a a city battle. So it's interesting what some of these candidates are, are grasping onto.
1: Well, and they've got to be careful about that. I've noticed that with a few candidates where they, um, I, I'm not sure that's the case, in the case with respect to uh, to Ms. Gondek mm-hmm. because. There is a possibility of direct connections, uh, at least in terms of some policies with the federal government. But I do notice in a number of areas, uh, those who are not currently on council don't seem to be entirely clear on what is within their power and what is not. Uh, But again, as I said, with respect to to Dorothy Gondek, she's trying to push things in a particular direction. Mm -hmm. The province, obviously, is is inclined to move in any case. It's just a matter of negotiating, and she wants to be part of, of the dialogue in terms of what happens um, uh, in terms of how those those funds um, are distributed. So there's always a, a role, a leadership role to be played by, um, by cities in terms of trying to push things in a direction that works well for their constituents. And Calgarians are represented by the city, by the province, and also by the federal governments. And, and we've heard a lot, um, especially lately, about how much um, Canadians want to, to have those governments work together. And so I would say that that her position uh, is, is sort of moving in that direction in the way that cities often do. Uh, I don't think it's a matter of saying that she has the power or the funds to
0: do something on her own. Absolutely. Well, it's going to be, if, if nothing else, it's going to be an interesting few months ahead. Thanks for your time this morning, Lori.
1: Yeah, my pleasure, Andy.
0: That's Laurie Williams, Associate Professor of Economics, Justice, and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University. The city of Calgary saw their crime severity index drop by 17% in 2020. That's according to new numbers from StatsCan. It's the biggest drop in Canada, only behind Regina, which fell 20%. Uh, but what do these numbers mean? And joining us for some clarification is Calgary Police Service Deputy Chief Chad Tofik Good morning to you, Chad.
2: Good morning, Andy. how are you doing today?
0: Good. thank you for taking the time. What's the reaction from the CPS to these numbers and this drop? Well, it was
2: somewhat anticipated you know we'd been tracking it throughout 2020 and the pandemic to see you know what has what would be the impact on crime. and certainly we saw a similar pattern as per the rest of the country, but a little bit more so as far as reductions.
0: When you dig into it, the biggest drops are uh, kind of uh, super niche as far as property crimes, robberies, and reported sexual assaults. Uh, but did you see a corresponding drop in overall crime in the city?
2: Yeah, you bet. There was. We saw, as you mentioned, a seventeen percent reduction in the crime severity index, and so that means both the seriousness of crimes and the frequency or volume that we see happening. So some of that certainly can be attributed to the uh, the pandemic and the various restrictions that were put in place, and we saw that dip in in crime especially in the first few months of the the restrictions april and on
0: is this as, uh, as simple as saying like for example uh, you know shoplifting petty theft robberies and break-ins uh, the uh, break and enters rather fell sharply for the f- first few months of 2020 is this uh, simply a result of more people being at home during the day
2: I think that's certainly a, a strong contributing factor uh, with people, you know, r- working remotely, being at their residences, an increased sense of guardianship around property, there's just less likelihood, less uh, targets uh, f- to be vulnerable to. Uh, same with the shoplifting, uh, you know, with the closures and restrictions of, of people being in, in the stores, that, that just reduces the opportunity.
0: Uh, within the data released by StatsCan, one important area where crimes actually went up nationally uh, was hate crimes. Was that the case in our city as well?
2: Yeah, you know, we saw we saw increases uh, in in Canada. I think it was 56 more than 2019 for overall hate crime reported incidents. And locally here in the Calgary and Alberta area, we saw it, it increases. Uh, and certainly, I think that's there's a lot of factors that contribute to that and. I mean, The reporting aspect is a really important consideration in all of these statistics because as people come forward more, that's all that we really know. So we encourage people to report those types of incidents.
0: 2020, uh, Deputy Chief, was anything but normal. Now that we're moving back to normalcy, can we expect the severe crimes numbers to be going up as we get back to our quote-unquote old ways?
2: Well, we're certainly watching it very closely. I can tell you that... Uh, some of the the more serious crimes aren't trending up yet, but we are seeing some movement and some volume increases in other categories of crime, property crime and others, uh, and and such. So we are expecting it to to somewhat trend in a different direction, uh, and certainly I don't think we can expect to see continued decreases like we saw in 2020.
0: Thanks for the explanation and uh, joining us this morning. We appreciate it.
2: My pleasure. Have a great day.
0: You too. That is Chad Toffick, deputy chief. From the Calgary Police Service. (music) Researchers at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy released a new report this morning touting the value of youth mental health services by hearing what patients in those programs have to say. Joining us is one of the study's authors, Dr. Jennifer Zwicker, the Director of Health Policy at the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary. Good morning to you, Dr. Zwicker.
3: Good morning. Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for taking the time with us. We appreciate it. Well, you know, outside looking in, it seems like this is something that would already have been done in the past. You you think listening to patients and how their mental health treatment has gone would be a great way to fine-tune programs. So has it not been happening, or does it just need to be retooled?
3: Yeah, so we've been uh, looking at these measures called patient-reported outcome measures that are really more of a helpful tool that patients can report back. Uh, to their care providers or kind of um, provide useful information on their experience. And that hasn't been something that's been collected in Alberta um, to date, but it can be very helpful in ensuring that the, the services and supports that are provided are, are basically meeting the, the health and well-being needs of, of patients
0: right now three separate government ministries share responsibility for youth mental health does does it make it tough to determine how effective the treatment is because of the the different moving parts within this uh, system
3: yeah i think it can be and it it's it's important to recognize that you know it's these are important uh for important for ministries in health community social services and education to be aware of um the implications on on health and quality of life and And how um, mental health is very important in in kind of all the different um, services and supports that are provided across those ministries. And so, um, you know, what we're getting at in the report is that by starting to um, collect this kind of data and and understand people's experiences, um, that can be really useful in assessing, you know, what's working and maybe what's not working as well.
0: Now your study uh, dr Zwicker centers around having patients fill out questionnaires called proms or patient reported outcome measures what uh, is the number one conclusion or conclusions if you will uh, drawn from the data garnered by these self assessment forms
3: yeah, I think the the main conclusion is it's important to get patients' perspectives on mm-hmm. on the services provided and and how they're um, how they're doing what what their health um their health and well-being is, and typically, um, you know, it might be that you you get a treatment or service, and and there's not kind of that input directly back from patients. And so, you know, there's this um, real push now to try and um, collect information that you can collect in these patient-reported outcome measures that really incorporates feedback from patients to make sure that services and supports are are meeting their needs.
0: So the number one recommendations coming out of the study, you know, you've got this great data. Where do you hope it goes?
3: Um, I think the hope is that it it really helps to start inform some of the the strategies and decisions and investments around mental health services in Alberta. We do have a new center for child and adolescent mental health that's being developed in Calgary, which is really exciting. And I think there's lots of opportunities for starting to really systematically collect this information to help make sure we're we're investing in support and services that are really getting us where we want to go, which is kind of better mental health and well-being, um, particularly for youth.
0: Can you, to that point, in, in as far as, you know, the results of this study and using it as a tool, can you give us a behind-the-scenes look? I know that you come from the academic world. You've done your due diligence. Uh, but as far as bringing this to life and, and presenting it to the province How does something like that work, and and what is the process from, from, you know, your results to bringing it to the province?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think um, a lot of it can be integrated into some of the systems that we have. So, you know, we have um, electronic health records that are being, especially being rolled out with the new Connect Care program and trying to ensure that this type of information is something that's more routinely collected um, in day-to-day so that you can start... Tailoring that feedback and even just having, for example, a conversation with your clinician um, based on the input you provide so that it helps to kind of tailor supports um, in a way that kind of meets, meets people's needs and um, in, in, in based on their feedback. So it's, it's kind of more real time and on the same token at a systems level, trying to ensure that we're investing in services that are, are aligned in that way.
0: You know, uh, obviously, mental health has uh, garnered much more attention. It seems to me in the past five years, which is obviously a positive. Anytime we can, you know, look at mental health of Albertans and Canadians for that matter. But I'm wondering, the focus of this was on the youth mental health, uh, and I'm um, uh, what what makes youth mental health unique? What makes it a unique animal compared to the mental health of adults?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the one of the big things is that most mental health um, concerns are are usually Prevalent in youth, um, maybe emerge in adulthood, but are usually uh, prevalent in youth first, and um, often services and supports are not um, received in in kind of early childhood or adolescence. And we're actually seeing with the pandemic, you know, a real increase in youth mental health concerns. And I think, you know, this is something that we need to be paying attention to um, as as we start looking at. of recovery and and kind of some of the implications of some of the isolation of lockdown measures so you know i think it's something that needs increased intent attention um over the coming year
0: you mentioned the the increased intention you know here in the province and i'm not sure i want to put you on the spot here Doctor Zwicker, but do you know uh, has there been any research or to your knowledge how alberta stacks up when it comes to resources for youth mental health maybe compared to our neighboring provinces
3: um, yeah, I don't. I don't know in terms of kind of the a comparative aspect, but I think um, our resources are certainly um, being stretched right now in Alberta, and and there's a real need to ensure that uh, people are, are really getting the timely support that they need, and you know, just encourage encourage people to reach out to the resources and support that are there to get get support early, and um, you know, not let things. to kind of crisis
0: levels. I guess that's a a good message in the sense that the resources are there. If somebody needs help, there's got to be that conduit to to get them there. So uh, we appreciate you uh, sharing the details of your study. Thanks for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Jen Zwicker, Director of Health Policy at the School of Public Policy from the University of Calgary. 500 days ago, March 16th, 2020. That's the day a whole bunch of us started working from home. And for many of us, Going back to the office brings some concern. Dr. Erica Pimentel Pimentel is an assistant professor of accounting at Smith School of Business at Queen's University and has some ideas on how employees who want to keep working from home can negotiate with their employers to do just that. We're joined now by Dr. Pimentel. Good morning to you.
4: Hi, thanks for having me on the show.
0: Thank you for joining us. 500 days, boy, that sounds like a lot. It's a long time away from the office, and there's got to be a few people who simply aren't looking forward to going back. Should these workers have to go back to the office?
4: I think this should really be a point of negotiation between employees and employers. I mean, a recent study by the Harvard Business School Online found that 80% of remote workers want to stay home in some capacity uh, going forward. Now, not they don't all want to stay home five days a week. You know, we, it's probably a 50-50 split of that 80%. 40% want to work from home permanently, and about... 40% want to work from home part of the time. Now, employers are not as excited about this. The employers I'm talking to are telling me, maybe for employees who can work remotely, we're seeing maybe two, three days a week is more
0: likely. Okay, so yeah, we maybe a difference of opinion here. You know, maybe a, an opportunity to meet in the middle. So I'm wondering, what's the best way as a little old employee yeah. to approach management and yeah. negotiate this?
4: So I think it's really putting oneself in their boss's situation and saying, what is my employer worried about? For many employers, they see this as a win-lose, right? The employee has everything to gain. The employee benefits from flexibility. The employee can manage their time. They can have better work-life balance. And the employer just loses. They lose in terms of productivity, they lose in terms of the ability to oversee directly what their employees are doing. So it's important for the employee to come out the conversation and reframe it as a win-win and really understand what are their employer's sticking points. Is it an issue of productivity? Is it a question of team culture? But the employee is coming out the conversation with 20 months of data. And so if the employee can leverage examples of times that things really worked well during the pandemic and the employee was working remotely with no experience doing so, with no training in doing so, and say, look, these are all the successes we had. So, for instance, we brought in three new major clients and we did that all remotely. Or I trained 10 new people, onboarded 10 new staff, I did that remotely. Or we did a major systems implementation, we did that all remotely. If the employee can leverage those examples, that kind of reduces the risk for the employer because they're saying, oh, yeah, I I can see how this is working. Or it is not like you know this is an employee who used to be fully in person and wants to make a major change but i also would caution employees at expecting this to be the last conversation about working from home right of getting the answer they want the first time i think it's better to frame it as maybe an experiment and say the employer look let's try for the next three months i can work from home two days a week and And that allows the employer to see that the employee's flexible and is amenable to changes if the companies need changes. So it's not the employer is giving up everything and the employee is getting. It's really a win-win for everybody.
0: Okay, so you mentioned approaching it with that win-win kind of a pitch, looking at the past 20 months or whatever it might be and saying, okay, well, these are some examples. But I guess when it comes to the negotiating power you have as an employee, It's not a one-size-fits-all. It depends on the industry, how many people in your company, and, and maybe even how long you've been at said company, doesn't it?
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we also have to consider what is your impact on your colleagues, right? People don't work alone. If you're one person and you're supervising 20 employees and you're working from home and they're all, let's say, in a bank, they're all at the branch, well, maybe that doesn't work, right? So the employee also has to think about how their team, how others are affected by their decision. You know, if you're a star performer, you're in a much better position to ask for a lot. And that does, that's not just about remote working. That's about salary. That's about perks. That's about everything. But there is this movement now, this uh, work from anywhere movement that we're seeing, where there are remote-only jobs. So that is sort of the nuclear option where an employee could say, well, I'm just going to look for something that is a remote-only position.
0: So I'm wondering, you know, you you have this want, it's it's worked for you and your family, perhaps, the workflows, you know, staying, you know, up to par. But I'm wondering if there are any pitfalls that an employee should watch out for when trying to get their employer to go along. Is there, you know, maybe you watch how far you push or testing the waters, knowing your audience?
4: You know, I'm really glad you brought that up because right now we're all working from home and all we see are the benefits, right? We see the flexibility, the fact you can go take a walk in the afternoon, but if we look back to pre-pandemic times, and there were few people working from home, and we looked at how, what happened to those people working from home when the rest of their team was in the office, the, the outcomes for those individual workers were not really great. So uh, there's one study that suggests that there's a 67% increase in isolation for people when you're working from home and your colleagues are not, right? Assuming that not everybody stays uh, working remote forever. And I don't think we needed a study to prove that. We all know that from the pandemic. There's this other great study done by a Stanford economist in 2014. He did an experiment. And so he said some employees are going to work from home, some are going to work from the office. The employees that worked from home had a 13% increase in productivity, but were 50% less likely to get promoted. Why? Out of sight, out of mind. And so if the employee really wants to work from home, I'd encourage them to think about what is it that they that they want? What is the benefit that they're seeking? Is it that they, you know, they're parents and they're really concerned about childcare and working from home allows them to maybe leave it, to stop working at 3:30 and continue working later in the evening? Well, that's a different conversation. Maybe you want to talk to your employer about leaving early, right? Employees need to be aware that it, they may want to continue working from home, but not everyone else will. And the world is going to continue to move while they're at home, and they may be passed up for opportunities. They may lack social connections going forward, and so they really have to think about what did they want long term, and and that should be part of the the conversation as well.
0: Doctor Pimentel, we got about thirty seconds left, but I want to sure. uh, you know uh, backtrack. And go back to compromise, because I think that when Mm -hmm. you go in with your negotiation, you want to shoot for the stars, but you should probably have that compromise in the back of your mind, like kind of the halfway point, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. You need to have a backup plan and be willing to come back to the conversation two, three months later if you don't get the answer you want today. But whatever you agree on with your employer, get it in writing. Even if it's a small company, send your employer an email and say, as we agreed, I'm going to start working from home one day a week for the next three months. It'll be a trial period, and we'll revisit it because otherwise, there may be disagreements down the road.
0: Yeah, it's swept under the rug, and wondering why that discussion and the uh, you know pertinent aspects of that discussion never came to life. Some some exactly. great some great points and a great conversation. Can't believe it's been 500 days. Thank you. It's amazing, well, isn't it? Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it.
4: Have a great
0: day and bye now. You too. That's Dr. Erica Pimentel, Assistant Professor of Accounting at Smith School of Business from Queen's University. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast.
1: Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or
0: wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 5.30 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.